from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Kurtco Media's Cars That Matter, and today we're talking about some cars that really, really matter to me and to the fellows in the room. I'm here with Pete Stout and Alex Polevsky, co-founders of Triple Zero, what I think is probably the greatest Porsche publication on the planet, and frankly, maybe one of the most beautiful magazines in the world. Greetings, guys. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, great to be here. Well, it's nice to be able to connect. I know Pete's up in San Francisco. Alex is right up the road on Amalfi, and that's a great place to be. I had a chance to meet you, Pete, back in, well, I'm going to say 2001. I think the both of us were on a new model launch for Lamborghini, of all things. And, you know, at the time we started talking, these, these gatherings are usually fairly quick and dirty, as it were. But at the time, we had some nice conversations. And I, I'd really admired your talent, not just as an editor, but kind of as an all-around likable guy. And certainly one of the most likable in the business. And, uh, of course, I felt like I'd known you since before I met you because I was a subscriber to Excellence Magazine. Right. I was there for quite a while, actually, 15 years. That is a real tenure, especially in today's day of, you know, nomads who basically jump from job to job every two years. You were the editor-in-chief by 98, which was a very good year because I took delivery of my 993 C4S that year. Oh, that's a good, that's and, a good delivery. Uh, yeah, it was a year in coming. So I was certainly deeply entrenched in excellence, and, you know, it was kind of a real lone voice in the wilderness for American publications. I know, Alex, at the time, you were probably with BMW, Bimmer Magazine. Is that right? Well, I worked for Ross, which is the parent company of Excellence. So mainly I worked on Sports Car International and Bimmer, but uh, I kind of moonlit on Excellence from time to time as well. Now, of course, I look forward to getting something else every three months. And it's probably time to talk about Triple Zero, which you've been publishing since 2016. It's written out in a trio of zeros, respectful of the Porsche script. And it's also in respect of Porsche's tradition of using three-digit numerals to designate a design or a model, i.e. the iconic 911. I know that uh, it's not a magazine like any other, and uh, I know that it has some attributes that are uh, just absolutely remarkable. I want to talk to you guys about that. There's no advertising in there to speak of. Very little. There's a little bit. We almost went no advertising. But I've noticed the ads that you do have are, I would call them tasteful and appropriate, and they usually have something to do with the aesthetic underpinnings of Porsche ownership. Your content is just amazing. I mean, it drills deep. Your creative director, Justin Page, is responsible for some brilliant design and photography that just is at the level of magazines in the design field. And, of course, the printing and binding is second to none. I mean, you definitely get your money's worth. I know what it takes to make those magazines. So tell us about it. So the genesis of Triple Zero came in probably 2016. Someone with a lot of resource came and said, I saw what you did with Excellence, saw what you did with Panorama. I'd like to see what you can do with a blank slate and I'll be your bank. And that kind of caught me off guard. And so he said, come to me with a concept. And luckily as an English major, I had done about seven business models by then. Starting something had always been on my mind. And of course, as an English major, the first three or four business plans were terrible. But what I would say to anybody thinking about... They were written well. Uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> they, were, they were written out of Business Plans for Dummies, I think yeah. was the book I worked from. Yeah. But what I'd say to anybody thinking about a business plan is the first time you write one, you'll think it's terrible. And it will be terrible, most likely. At least it was for me. But the more you write them, the better you get at it. And so I think this was like the sixth or seventh business plan I'd written. 
And so I, I wrote the business plan and submitted it to him. Well, first I told him the concept for a quarterly on Porsche, something, a real deep dive. Didn't have a name for it yet, just had this idea of studying Porsche at a deeper level. As a car nut first, I'm interested in all cars, but my career steered by excellence and my 914 that I grew up with took me down the road of Porsche and so many rich relationships. Sure. So I went to him with the concept for this and I said, this, this isn't going to be inexpensive to make. And I don't think we should try to target at a large audience. This should be for the audience that really cares and wants to understand the mark. They want to understand what is the meaning behind that shield on the hood. He said, great, come back to me with a business plan. And luckily, I had done some business plans. So I brought the business plan back to him. And he looked at this. And he'd been in VC for many years and said, this is the most honest business plan I've seen in 15 years. Let's do it. But then he had a series of setbacks with one of the many companies he works with. And I think thousands of people depended on him being focused on that. Much more important than a little passion project. Sure. And so when it looked like it wasn't going to go, I called two friends to cry on their shoulders. People had been sounding boards along the way for the concept. And one was Jeff Swart and the other was Alex Pilevsky, longtime friends. And then the next day I got a text from Alex that said, I think I can find the money. Call me this afternoon. So I did. And he says, look, you know, I want to see you do this, and I can probably figure out a way to make this work. We should do this together. And my first thought was, whatever this can be, I don't want it more than our friendship, because that went back to Ross Periodicals. Sure. And he said, it doesn't have to, we'll do it the right way. It doesn't have to be that way. So that was kind of the beginning of Triple Zero. It didn't even have a name yet. And so we formed an LLC and got going in the summer of 2016, went and visited Germany together at, at the Porsche factory to let them know what our intentions were and what we were going to be doing. That flight over, I think, is very important to talk about because the flight over, you know, now we were just dealing with a concept and the sky was the limit. We could do whatever we wanted. It was a complete blank slate. So Pete and I, sitting next to each other on that 12-hour flight or whatever it was over to Germany, now was the time to figure out, okay, what are we actually going to put in this thing? And that was a very interesting flight, bouncing ideas back and forth, narrowing down what would be possible, what wouldn't be possible, what an actual issue of this thing would look like. So when we got to Germany, we kind of had a rough idea of what this thing was going to look like and, and how it was going to read. But what I didn't tell Alex on that flight was I had this chilling moment as we were flying over the Atlantic somewhere and Alex and I were talking about what would go in this thing. I thought, what if all the stories have been told? What if all the stories have been told? What if all, I've been doing this Porsche thing for 18 years and what if all the good stories are told at Excellence, at Panorama? What if my friend here has gone all in on this with me and I've resigned from my position at Panorama to start this crazy art project? What if all the good stories are done and what have I done? And we got to Germany and we spent the better part of a week in the archive and around with Dieter Lonenberger, the, the head archivist at the time. And I felt like I was back in college, mm -hmm. like maybe a sophomore in college. It's like saying, you know, what if all the great music's been written? What yeah. if all the great art has been made? And some would argue that there's still an opportunity to explore. And obviously you guys have done that. After heaping some well-deserved praise on their Triple Zero magazine, I asked Pete and Alex to talk about the Porsche models that really matter most. But they wanted to talk about one car in particular. This model was so unique, we almost never knew it existed. It was built, but never turned a wheel in anger. A race car that never raced. Ah, do tell. Well, for issue seven, we did a story on the LMP2000, which is a Porsche that not that many people know about. 
And it was meant to be the follow-up race car to the 911 GT1 98, the one Le Mans 98, right. famously on the 50th anniversary. That's right. And so Norbert Singer and co. had planned this V10 Spider, this world endurance racing Spider, this Le Mans car, and it would have been able to race elsewhere as well. And it was a, an outgrowth of the Footworks V12 program, which didn't do that well. Mm-hmm. And they kind of figured out, Metzger and, and his engine crew kind of figured out that this engine wants to be a V10, not a V12. And so they readdressed that engine, and it became a V10, and they had plans to put the Spider into racing. And they looked at a V12 coupe as well. They looked at putting the 12 into a coupe, but none of this was known to me, or to anyone, really. All that we all knew was that they had a car. It was rumored they had this LMP2000. The project was happening under complete secrecy, and then they canceled it to build the Cayenne instead. Ah, uh, first things first. And so Vendelin Vitaking was vilified by all the enthusiasts out there, and there were some T-shirts made with profanities. The late Bruce Anderson had a T-shirt made up that said, F. Lamont, we're building trucks. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And so a lot of the enthusiasts were up in arms. How can you not go racing after winning Lamont with the GT198? Racing is the core of Porsche. And it is at some level. But Ferry Porsche was always into streetcars. Ferry Porsche had, at multiple points, chosen the, the road cars as more important than the race cars. The antithesis of Ferrari, for instance. Exactly. Correct. Much like Lamborghini. Correct. No it, interest in racing. Well, and remember the Formula One program. Ferry yeah. Porsche chose, nope, we're not going further with this. Remember Ferdinand Piech wanting 13-inch wheels on the That's 906. And Ferry Porsche saying, sorry, nephew, you've got to use up all those 15-inch wheels first. <laughs> so... Porsche had at various points, even though Vita King was vilified for this, Porsche had at various points made these sorts of decisions. And the LMP2000 was caught on film with what must have been a 600 or 1200 millimeter lens. One time. One day. It's like a flying saucer. Exactly. It's like the Loch Ness Monster. And I don't know this to be true, but I believe that it was leaked to somebody that the car was going to run once. Now I believe that. I didn't know that then. And two or three photos leaked out into the world of this car in very low resolution. And you can Google them. They'll come right up if you Google Porsche LMP2000. The sort of grainy, long-distance images will come up. Kind of like the JFK Maryland photos I have. (laughs) Very much so. Very much so. So this car was shot from a very far distance away from the Weissach test track. They got one front three-quarter, one rear three-quarter, and one side profile not complete. And then that was it. The car disappeared. There was never another photo of it. And Porsche did not acknowledge that this car existed, which is very important to mention. For a long, long time, they would not acknowledge it. So the car just into thin air. And what really happened was it was put into this underground vault they used to have, which you may have seen at some point, Robert, in your travels. <laughs> but they Never the one with that particular mummy in it. <laughs> okay, so they, they, the car disappeared under, in, into a vault and under covers, and Vita King was apparently furious that the three photos had gotten out. And they dispatched a crew to figure out where the photos had come from and to make sure that no photos would ever come from that space again. As the years went on, I was sitting at my desk one day and the Porsche calendar showed up. Porsche does an annual calendar with a different theme every year, just to clarify. And in some years, they do multiple themes. So they'll do two or three calendars in that year. And and one of the calendars I happened to get one year had a photo of the LMP2000 in the calendar. And I immediately... Not a grainy long lens photo, mind you. A real professional photo. In the underground storage vault. And I, to this day, I'd like to confirm this, but to this day, it's my belief that they turned a couple of photographers loose in there. The idea of this calendar was sort of these cars that didn't make it out or these hidden treasures. Was this a mea culpa? I don't think it was any of that. I'd like to confirm it. I'm I'm not sure about this, but my sense is that a couple of photographers who were young 
were turned loose in that vault to photograph cars. And then an art director who didn't know what they were looking at let it out there. But I immediately picked up the phone and called Carrie Morris, who's our editor at random and perhaps the most intelligent person I've come across on Porsche Motorsport and race cars in the 20 years I've been in this game. And so I called Carrie and I said, you won't believe what I'm looking at. And he said, what? And I said, I'm looking at the LMP2000 in, in high resolution photos. And he said, where? I said, it's in, in the Porsche calendar. He said, send me some photos. So I sent him some snapshots on the phone and he couldn't believe it either. And so I really wanted to get a good story to go with the car. And I had spoken to McNish about it when I brought the calendar for his signature. And he wrote on my calendar, he wrote the one that got away and then signed his name. And I had actually talked to Wolock before he died about the car. And he just got this big smile. Wow. And all reports were that the car was really, really good. But it only tested once. Vita King effectively had already made the decision to kill the program. And Norbert Singer said, can we run it? Can we at least test it? And he said, you can test it once and then it goes away. And so the car disappeared. And 20 years later, we finally got the story. Randy Leffingwell told the story expertly. And we asked Porsche, would they bring the car back to Weissach for a photo shoot? Which is where it had been snapped that fateful day by the spy photographer. And what we didn't know was that was the first time the car had been back to Weissach for 20 years. And some of the people we were working at with Porsche didn't understand. They said, well, why can't you photograph it just here at the museum? Or why can't you photograph it over here in this parking lot? said, no, no, it's important that we shoot it in Weissach. It's important that we get it there. And that took some work to get them over that hump. But they eventually transported the car over to Weissach. And then we got an interesting email from the people involved. And they said, you know, everyone at Weissach was very interested in this car. They're wondering, what is this car? And where did it come from? And why is it here? And could we maybe use some of these photos? And so this is really the fun of this because we ended up doing what a probably a 50 or 70 page article on that car and Porsche broke loose the archival documents and we were able to share those archival documents, the wind tunnel tests, the The parts list. We did the parts list. They had a complete parts list for this car, almost complete parts list. That's amazing. Truly amazing. And who but triple zero could have done that? So we published the parts list for the LMP2000, took several pages. We also published the test notes. We published the internal notes of how many front ends they would need to go to Le Mans with, how many of each parts. And you get an eye into, and this is what Triple Zero is really about, you get an eye into how Porsche thinks. And that for us is probably the most rewarding, most interesting thing is to see how do they go about their superiority? How do they go about making sure when they show up at Le Mans or a race, it's a near foregone conclusion that they'll win. By leaving no stone unturned. Let's go to a break and come back and talk about some of those singular cars that have made a difference in our lives. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Well, I'm back with Pete Stout and Alex Pilevsky with Triple uh, Zero Magazine. Let's jump back in. Of course, Porsche lived on by way of the Cayenne, however you look at that. I'm trying to remember now, I think it was in another interview by Kerry Morris with Hart McChristen, and he asked him, was that the right decision to cancel the LMP2000? And this is asking the musician, was it the right decision to cut your guitar in half? And Hart McChristen, it's wonderful, even in the words you can see the emotion, and he says... Yeah, in hindsight, that was the right decision. It was the right decision to cancel that car. But the silver lining is that old phrase at Porsche, nothing to waste. They canceled the race program, but the silver lining was they brought back that V10 and the basic concept of the LMP2000 became the basis for the Carrera GT road car. Yeah, and talk about another car that matters. Maybe one of the most pivotal cars of the decade. I know you're a fan, Pete. Well, I would argue the last great analog car. You know, in terms of supercars, in in terms of supercars, that's the last great supercar that's analog. 
three pedals, manual gearbox, V10. Not an easy clutch to work, and I remember the launch of that car in uh, oh, Berlin. Oh, were you there, too? Yeah, we were on that together. A, yeah, with uh, Walter Earl, and what a what a remarkable, remarkable automobile. That was the one that was on the landing strip? Yeah, yes. at Michelin Proving Grounds. So I can fill in some backstory for you what happened when you drove to the airport and I stayed on. Do tell. So you may recall that when we got there, they had lost two of the six Carrera GTs to journalists from another wave. So one of the cars was was spun by a French rider. And apparently the guy had spun it on the slalom. And you remember that slalom was on the the MiG fighter base runway, which wasn't a huge runway for these MiG fighters. No. And we did the slalom exercise. And here came Walter Rural. And he said, Pete, you know, what do you think? It was my first time driving. You did the same exercise. And I looked at Walter, I said, that's not a car you get in and go fast in, out of the box. No. And, and Walter... A learning curve, definitely a learning curve. Yeah, Walter... Some people have unfortunately learned the hard way. Yes. You know, it's not a Boxster. It's not even an, an all-wheel drive 911 Turbo. The Carrera GT is a very high bar to get into. And so I looked at Walter, I said, that's not a car you just get in and go fast. And Walter's nodded quietly and thoughtfully and then said, yes, this is the right answer. And then what I thought to myself was also a slalom is one of the least useful tests for a road car. It's good for an engineer, but how often in your life do you really slalom in in such tight quarters? Well, one of the riders the day before we arrived, you and I arrived, had looped it on the slalom and somehow managed to get all the way across the half of the runway to a post. Wow, that's quite an achievement. But he just barely missed the post and didn't hit the back bumper. And so he was okay. Now, let's try it again. Now, now, you and I, you know, normally if we had a day like that, we'd say, maybe today's not my day. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll cool out. Yeah. And apparently that same driver put it into a tree later that afternoon. So that just raised his ire. It just inflamed him and enraged him to the yeah. point where he had to He proof. was determined to smash that car up one way or another. Wow. So the day before we got there, the other car, apparently, so I've heard, there was a misshift. Mm. And the last reading on the Motronic brain, if I remember correctly. No, it was like 12,000 RPM. 14,500. No. 14,500. If, if I remember correctly, it was 14,500. Fifth to second, I guess, yeah, out I on guess the runway so. instead of fourth. So they were terrified when you and I showed up. And if you might recall, they made us drive behind Cayennes and other cars. That's right. And so uh, that evening, at the end of the day, I saw the late Bob Carlson. Sure. Who we both, I mean, what an incredible... Yeah, he was an ambassador of Porsche. Without question, and, and also just a mentor on a lot of levels. Yeah. He was a consummate professional. And so I saw Bob, and there's moments in your life where you cash all the chips in. And that's what I did here. I cashed all the chips in, and I said, Bob, I've got a price. Well, why don't you just write about the technology when you get home? And I said, we already did that story, and it was nine pages. And he said, well, let me see what I can do. And he came back, and he said, all the American journalists, which I'm sure you were one of those except for one other, were leaving early in the morning. I think it was something like 8, 7.38. And he said, be out five minutes after you guys were gone. So he said, be out there at 8.45, let's say. And so I go out on the steps just after you had driven away. And I wasn't allowed to tell this story back then. I said, oh, could I write this story? And Bob said, please don't. In, in the time, please don't. Cause That's it right. Would have caused, and this is, you know, now this is 15 years later. I think we can talk about it. Kind of like, my husband's just left for work. Back door's open. <laughs> so, red red 996 Carrera 2 Cabriolet pulls up, 2004-ish, and out pops this German guy named Rolf, and he pops up. And I'd had lunch with Rolf the day before. Instead of eating with the journalists, I went over and ate with some Germans. And it turned out he was this older guy who'd been there for 35 years or something. And he was, on the weekends, he was a volunteer driving instructor in their track programs. And he looked over the convertible top when he got it. He's like, ah, oh, you, because he remembered lunch. 
And I'm always fascinated when people have been at Porsche for a long time. I've always cherished those conversations. Sure. And so I get in the Carrera and we drive over to the closed MIG fighter base. There's no mechanics anywhere to be seen. And we get a Carrera GT. And he, you know, takes me out of the, out of the runway. And we get out, you know, past one of the gates out on this road. And he seems pleased that I didn't kill the clutch, you know. So we get going and I think, okay, I still have to follow him. So it's still the same bummer as the day before. But maybe he's in a 911 and maybe if I can convince him that I'm okay at this, he'll speed up. So I'm going to pick a distance and I'll just stay always at that distance. So I picked, I think, six or eight car lengths and I just would never vary the distance. And as we got going... He started to kind of struggle a little quicker. And then we got on the Autobahn. I thought, here's your moment. You can just get on it. But I thought, no, don't do it. Stay behind him. Stay behind this guy at six car lengths and just see if he'll keep going quicker. We got off the Autobahn, and I had changed the display to miles per hour. And, you know, this engine's making these insane noises. Yeah, you what, know, a great, what a great sound. The V10 just sounds like it's right off of the racetrack yeah. of the American Le Mans series. Well, it kind of was, or would have been. Would have been. I mean, it sounds better than a Judd, and that's saying something. So, yeah. I mean, it's really quite an engine noise, a screaming engine noise. And pretty soon, I look down, and we're doing 128 miles an hour next to all these trees on a two-lane road. And we're hauling. And we get into town, and I'm double-clutched down, shifting through the gears. It sounds insane. And we come to a right-hand turn stop sign, and his door opens. I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And he looks back and gives me this big thumbs up and then slams his door and just floors it out of this intersection <laughs> in first gear. And he's got to be doing – he's at 11 tenths in this thing, 10 tenths. I don't know. He's using all the career, you know, within reason. We were on public roads. He's sure. being, he's being yeah. smart about it, but yeah. he's on it. And I realized I didn't know how to get back into the closed MIG fighter base. So I had to keep up. And this guy's like passing. He's now quite exuberant. And he's passing like three, four cars. And without him, you're lost. So he gets on it. I realize I've got to follow him or I'm gonna, I am gonna—I won't know how to get back to the fighter base. <laughs> and the guy is just wholesale passing three, four cars. It's safe. But I mean, he's in his space. And it's one of the tricks about our business, you know. That's right. You go over to another country. Those roads are... You, yeah, you don't know all of their body language. You don't know all of their mores, all of, all, all of the courtesies. You're in a space where you may not understand every street sign. Uh, Right-of-way functions differently in and Europe. that's when Europe. they're driving on the right side of the road. Correct. On the mm-hmm. correct side of the correct. road. Correct. And this is former Eastern Germany. And there were still a few Trabants around. Absolutely. So we get back to the fighter base. And maybe one of the most surreal moments in my driving history happens when we get through the uh, gate there. I'm following him back to the hangars. We're done with the drive. And I've got plenty of impressions to write a story. And we're going down the runway. And the day before, I did 205 miles an hour in the car, but that's Rural, right. Rural was driving. That's right. And it was right. a real 205 because it was I the remember. Motec. It was I the Motec I remember box. that Motec between your legs. Yes, Motec between your legs. And so you knew it was a real 205. But we're, I'm driving behind him on the way back to the hangar. And his hazard lights are on. So, you, so picture this 996.2 Cabriolet, this 911 Cabriolet, sort of 2004 era. And you're following it down this MIG fighter base runway and the hazard lights are on. And I had this realization. I thought, you know, we're driving with hazard lights on. That usually means 15 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour. It feels a little quicker. I looked down and we were doing 168 miles an hour. And I didn't even realize it. That's. It was only six miles per hour from his top speed. That's fantastic. And the Carrera GT felt roughly appropriate to have the hazard lights on like you were jockeying from one parking lot to the next. 
that is an amazing story. Boy, you had quite an experience in that car, and one that few people have had because they're pretty rare these days, and uh, I suspect that most owners have never had an opportunity to exploit them like that. We'll be back after this break. I was introduced to Stefano Ricci decades ago, and I was enamored of his creations then, and just as impressed now. Stefano Ricci is about style that matters because it lasts. The design, the craftsmanship, uh, everything about everything he does is uh, made to endure. Porsche is not just about engineering. It's not just about racing history. It's not just about the relationship between Porsche owners and their cars. It's also about design. And one of the fundamentals of design is color. Right now, you drive through the world, especially here in L.A., but at San Francisco, too, and I think just about everywhere, and it's a sea of white, black, silver, and gray cars. That's right. Colors have just disappeared. That's right. And so one day I get a text from Alex, and I think everybody has somebody who sends them bombshell texts. I hope everyone has somebody who sends them bombshell texts. And Alex sends me a note, and it says, I have a genius idea, and genius is in all caps. I thought, oh, boy. I said, I can only go downhill from this text, so what's going to happen when I call? And I call Alex, and he says, we should do a Cars and Coffee-style gathering for Porsches and paint a sample. And I said, that is a genius idea, but let's make it a little bit more open, and let's invite any Porsche in an unusual color. So going back to pretty much the beginning of Porsche, you had your colors that were in the brochure that you could pick from, your set selection of colors. But Porsche always allowed you to request from them a color that was not in the normal palette, the normal available color palette. And there's kind of two levels of paint to sample, which I'll just touch on briefly. But basically, there's colors that already exist, but maybe were from another model year and had been discontinued or came from another model, but not the model that you're looking to buy, but you want the color from the other model on your model. Like the mint green from 1992. What a well, color that was. That would be an example. Yep. To, you know, If you wanted to request that color on a new car. And you see a few. And you do see a few. That's one example. The, the true, the truest kind of pure version of paint to sample is the ability to actually pick any color. So at various points in, in Porsche's history, they've allowed you to come to them with a sample or um, a reference to another product and say, I want this exact color that I'm pointing out. Tiffany may, box. Exactly. It may not even be an automotive color, maybe from some other product like a Tiffany box, but that's the color that you want. And, and often they will do it. Not always. It really depends on the era and the model and a lot of other circumstances. But in recent years, you know, the cat's kind of been out of the bag about this whole paint-to-sample program. For a long time, it was kind of known to the inner circle of Porsche people. and It was always available, but it was kind of hush-hush. From 1948 on, or 49 really, but 19, early, early 1950s, you could do it. You could you could have them paint a car in any color. Of course, cars were all metal back then, and there were no problems with well, the that was a big part of it. That's a big that, part of it. Yeah. You know. So at some point, you know, talking about that, at some point, um, I think Porsche decided that they needed to have a process to approve the color. They wouldn't just approve it when you requested Those it. Those Germans they, are big on process. Yeah, they wanted to do a feasibility oh, yes. study and figure out: Will this 
color that's requested live up to the standards that all our cars have to live up to. So in recent years, you, you have to apply for the color that you want, and then they will either approve it or reject it. But once a color has been approved, then anyone else can order it. So in recent years, as the paint-to-sample program has become more known and more people have been requesting it, there's been a lot of talk about what colors should be picked. And a lot of the challenge of the paint-to-sample program is you don't really know what the color is going to look like on your car until it shows up. <laughs> and so you have to, in a lot of cases, pick the color blind. You may have seen the color on another model, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that color is going to look the way you think it will on the model you're selecting. I know Pasha Red's one that stands out as being a particularly uh, touchy color to get right. Yes. Well, and I had for first-hand experience because I ordered an oak green metallic car, and I loved oak green metallic in the 930 and 964 days. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. And when it showed up, it wasn't oak green like the 70s or 90s. It had a gold undertone. Under the green, it had a, a bit of gold in it, much like one of the arena reds. There's actually two arena reds. Oh, I didn't at realize least, that. At least. At least two arena reds. And that's another confusion that people have over colors. Guards red is not guards red from start to finish. Guards red changes in 70s and 90s. The name and, stays the same, but the color changes. And they tweak it. So that's another complication. But anyway, Anyway, just to finish my point, I wanted to help people who are in this predicament, which is a very fortunate predicament to be in, yeah, of having yeah. to this is a first choose world, yeah. this is a first world problem, major Alex. first world problem of trying to figure out what color to select. So the only real way to do it is to see a whole selection of colors in real life on real cars. So I thought if we could have this kind of gathering of people who have already done paint-to-sample colors or have colors that are rare that may qualify as colors that people would like to choose as a paint-to-sample color, to be able to see these cars in the flesh would help a lot of people decide which way to go. Well, I think that's a brilliant public service you're planning to do, and uh, I intend to join you guys <laughs> with uh, my car and uh, hopefully a whole slew of uh, really, really beautiful, beautiful rainbow of cars. And what color is that car, Robert? It's golf blue. It's an important color to me. It's an important color to Porsche. For our listeners, the 917s and golf blue, the John Wire cars, golf blue and orange were hugely influential in Porsche's history as a mark and as a success in racing. Yeah. So golf blue is a very special color in Porsche history. So yeah, it's a really, good choice. Well, you know, it resonates historically and personally, and I'm thrilled that the PTS program was finally kick-started back again. You know, the problem with PTS is uh, well, sometimes you can get it and sometimes you can't. I Correct. mean, Porsche factory can be very mercurial in, in their decision-making. I'm sure they have their reasons, but, you know, if they can't get the side mirrors painted to match, uh, you've all of a sudden lost your place in line and you don't get that color. Well, it's interesting, as Alex said earlier, the, the program was kind of on the inside and insiders were the ones ordering cars and special colors for many years and the price of the program was fairly reasonable yeah, in the grand scheme of Porsche. I think it was $4,000 or something like that. Yeah, when you think about getting a factory paint job and the color of your choosing, that's pretty incredible. Absolutely. And back then, they also were eating it on the research. So if you ordered up a, you, you sent in your sport coat and said, this green in the background here, I'd like I'd like a car in this color, they would then start working on that, and they would do the feasibility test to see if the mirrors, the bumpers, the metal, all these different materials would take the color, and, and it wouldn't wear out badly. They're testing for that as well. And more recently, they've said, we can't keep doing this. And so lately, there's criticism that it's more paint to list, as Alex mentioned, than paint to sample, because you're right. choosing what's available from what has previously been approved. 
you can still do, you can still apply for a new color, but it's probably not going to happen if, let's say, the new GT3 Touring comes out and you have your heart set on a particular color and you order it when the car is coming out, there's a very good chance it's not going to happen in that period of time. That's right. So there's that as a, as a potential <laughs> hurdle. And then additionally, as you noted, there's times when they can produce them and times when they can't. They do the paint-to-sample cars in batches, typically. And it has a lot to do with what else they're making at the time, how busy the factory is. There's you know, a lot of different factors. Back to, and back to consumer demand and really the business model that suggested the LM2000 is going to not go into the race program because we have to bolster the company by introducing the Cayenne. Well, and, and so with they, the demand outstripped supply on paint to sample, and so they started to raise the price. And, of course, people don't love that. But at the end of the day, Porsche's viewpoint is these cars should be special. And my view is some of these GT3s recently, paint to sample really isn't rare. In some cases, some of these In GT some cars. In some cases. Some of these GT cars, paint to sample is a significant proportion it, it, of it, the total production. It, seem, it seems to be. So I always like to say that Guards Red is the new PTS. Well, that's a really interesting point. I saw a, a great looking 89 Turbo in Guards Red the other day, and I thought to myself, man, that really was a signature look for that car. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That what was the signature color in what the 80s. A beautiful color. And I wouldn't have taken a red car to save my life a few years ago, but it's funny how things can kind of get under your skin and you can realize that sometimes there's a color that really embellishes and complements a shape like none other. And that Guards Red really does it for that Porsche. Moving on, you know, we've talked a lot about the past, Pete and Alex, and obviously we could reminisce down 911 Road all afternoon. But Porsche obviously is looking forward and looking forward to an electric future. I know you're one of the few people who's had some experience with the Taycan thus far. And what are your thoughts? Well, let's kind of look at it from a standpoint of high points and internal combustion. And you're driving one of those with GT3 Touring, in my opinion. That engine, when I drove that engine in France, I thought, this is one of the great engines, just, you know, despite its cylinder count. This is an engine to match as a masterpiece, the 250 GTO V12. Mm-hmm. This is a six-cylinder mm-hmm. engine that'll go toe-to-toe with the best engines from Ferrari. And so the other one that for me is a high point in internal combustion with Porsche would be the Carrera GT V10. Mm-hmm. And there are others. You know, the current three-liter twin turbo is a very high mark. People don't realize just how good that engine really is. But the Taycan is something else entirely. And people worry, can Porsche be Porsche without a gasoline engine? With no engine at all. Right, just with motors now. And for me, the change in perception and heart came with a 918 Spider. I spent about 1,000 miles or so with one on the north coast of California. And it's a very funny thing. I'd driven them on racetracks and short drives. And if somebody gives you a ride in a 918, as long as they're a safe driver, take the ride. You don't forget that. No, the way that that car accelerates from 0 to 60 or from 5 to 60 is is just stunning with those electric motors and the torque. But what doesn't come through to you in the 918 and why it's so important to test cars over a long set of miles is myself and the other test driver noticed that the exhaust pipes are right behind your head and very high above, above the engine, very unusual. After a couple hours, it starts to sound like an awful speedboat. It's it's just it's just grating. Yeah. After a few hours, enough is enough. As Popeye said, enough is enough, and enough is too much. It's just uh, all the way up the coast, and so both the other driver and I were were turning off the engine Mm -hmm. by going to full electric. And we'd actually even charge it so that we could turn off the engine to get a break. Right, right, right. It's like, whew. There was one thing I really liked about that, and that was when you come into some of those north coast towns in a GT3 or a Carrera GT, they know they've heard you coming for miles, and they all give you dirty looks. 
The brilliant thing about the 918 is you could be hauling up the coast on these curvy sections, and then you come into this little itty-bitty town that maybe loves Priuses and not so much Porsche, and you click into electric mode, and you just drive right through, and they, they're confused. Silently. You drive through silently. That's right. So they don't know that that was you that they heard coming up the coast. But I also found, we brought, for triple zero, we brought a Boxster Spider, a 987, which is a car that's near and dear to both of our hearts. Yeah. It's a phenomenal car. I wanted the simplest car, and then the 918, which is the most complex convertible. And so I wanted the measuring stick to be the purest Porsche sports car you could have in the modern era. And that was, at that time, the 987 Boxster Spider. Yeah. So we switched back and forth, and we were going through a section, and the other driver was quite good, quite quick on a back road. And I was in the 918 at one section, and he was in the Boxster Spider behind me. And I clicked into e-power mode, and the challenge became to not use more than two-thirds throttle because around there, the V8 kicks in to help. And the car was so enjoyable in electric-only mode. And I heard things I've never heard before. I heard wheel bearings. I heard, I heard suspension. That's what spooked me the first time I drove one. I'm hearing all these sounds. Is this a, what is it? Is it my, my vacuum cleaner? Is it my dishwasher? What are these noises? I can't really understand what's going on here. It's so eerie. It's almost like hearing your own blood pump when oh, yeah. you're inside of an MRI machine or something you're, like you're that. You're hearing giant wheel bearings out there on the carriers. You're hearing the anti-roll bar. You're hearing all these things. Some of the sounds sound like something out of Predator, the movie. Yeah. I mean, some of the sounds are really odd. And you're hearing the tires on the pavement. And what I found, however, was it felt like you were harnessing an energy that you had collected from the world, from your environment, and repurposing it. It felt a lot like sailing to me. It felt a lot like when you're out on a sailboat with someone who knows what they're doing. And you're taking something that's of the world and you're harnessing it and using it for your purpose. And I grew to love the feeling of it. And I will say that Pete, who was behind me in his Boxster Spider, knows the car very well, good track driver. I trust him on any test. He was moving, and he had to work at it to keep up with the 19 on electric only. And what that drive did was it opened my mind to the idea that electric could be interesting, that electric only. And so, so many of our colleagues were saying, this 918, it's so heavy, 37, 3,800 pounds. It's a big car. Heavy and big. And we had so many of our colleagues say, I'd like to try this car without the hybrid gear. And I remember thinking, no, 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 because we've had lots of those from Countach's and Mura's sure, down to the Carrera GT's, GT, yeah. Ferraris, down to a Lotus Elise. We've right. had this concept of a gasoline engine in a mid-engine sports car, but we've never had this hybrid concept. We don't need another rehash of that old, I love those cars. I love those simple sports cars. But the 19th point was to break new ground, and it did. And so it opened my mind what, what could, I'd like to know. Instead of wondering what the 918 would be like without the hybrid gear, I wanted to know what it would be like without the V8. That's right. I wanted to know what the car would be like without the gasoline. And to wit, we have the uh, Taycan. So, so here we are, and that's how I approached the Taycan when I went and visited Porsche's North American headquarters in Atlanta two weeks ago. And we got a tour around the car, and I think something that's going to surprise people when they see this car is how low it is. It's extremely low to the point that they actually made what they call foot garages or feet garages in the skateboard. And the skateboard is underneath the cars where the batteries are. Right. And Keep actually, that uh, center of gravity low, and that's how you have to design an electric car. And they effectively deleted the cells where the rear passenger's feet would go under the driver's ah. seats, the front seats, just to get the rear passenger's heads low lower so, so they could lower the roof. So it's, not a, uh, uh, so it's not a Panamera, but more of a real coupe shape. And then they also got rid of the structure, the, the cross beams in the roof, to also lower the roof. And when you stand next to this car, 
The car I saw in the room was black with black wheels and prototype disguise, but I had seen it in so many photos and I still wasn't ready for how low the car was in person and how wide, and you will not expect it as a sedan. The sedan, it it doesn't feel sedan when you're around it, when you're standing around it. It So it's actually a four-door coupe. We've been promised all these four-door coupes. Sure, back since Mercedes introduced theirs way back when, yeah. Yeah, this might actually be a four-door coupe. I I can't get there. The the (laughs) four-door coupe thing drives me crazy. But the reality is this car feels more 911 than sedan in its proportions. It feels very low. And so then... It was also eerie when they were telling us what was going to happen next, and they were finishing their press presentation. Four black Taycons drove by the curtains, and you could just catch a sliver of them. (laughs) And they wandered up to pick us up to take us out on the track, and I saw them go by the sliver. And I thought, now this is something else, too, because every one of these presentations would have done something like this. You hear the car show up. And you heard nothing. You're GT3 touring. You're going to hear it show up. And I got to say, there's something kind of cool about a car approaching silently. There's something very stealthy. Like, something. A, like a funeral procession without the dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. And so they took us out on track, and I knew we would be guinea pigs for these drivers. And so I had heard one was a racing driver, but I had no way of knowing which one was the racing driver. So I just had to pick a car. So I got in the back seat of one of the cars. And so I went down, and, and you didn't have a guarantee that the driver you drove down to the track with would be the driver who drove you on track. And so I watched the four cars to confirm who was the racing driver. And you could just tell with this one driver, Thomas, that he was that bit cleaner collecting slides, that he was that he was just that bit more ferocious. And so as I was watching him go by, I thought, that's the guy. You know, I'm going to wait till the end if I have to, but that's the one to ride with. And the PC Atlanta track, which you've probably been on, is pretty tight. There's not a lot of runoff. It's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty tight place. And it's a test track more than, or it's not a test track. It's more of an experience track. Right. But for me, the thing that wasn't as wild, the, the zero to 60 in around three seconds or under, there's cars that do that. Sure. That's everybody's stock and trade now, it it's, seems. It's a party trick. There's, yeah. no, one, there's yeah. no driver involvement in that. There's no... Anybody can do it. Right. Quite literally, anyone can do it. But the way this car went through the back part of that track, which is tight, twisting, up, down, off camber, camber, it went through those corners. It weighs 5,100 pounds, which when I heard, I was so dispirited. I didn't realize it weighed that much. That's yeah, a big girl. It's, yeah, it's over 5,100 pounds. Wow. But when it went through that back section, the very tight section, it felt like my old 914 in the Berkeley Hills. Amazing. Well, it's weight down low and it's power to every wheel. And by the way, every single wheel has its own agenda. Right. The driver was exceptional. This, this particular driver was an exceptional driver. But the way that the car attacked a right, left, right, left over over rising crests, the way it dealt with those quick hit turns, the transitional agility blew my mind. And I'm very curious to see if that translates from behind the wheel. My sense is that it will. My sense is that this is something new and that as an enthusiast, I'm not against it. If it was replacing your GT3 or my old Weber carburetors, if in order to embrace the Taycan, you had to give up those things, I would have a different approach to this. But as a daily vehicle, it's quite intriguing. It sounds like they've actually stepped up the bar as they are always inclined to do. And the ubiquitous Tesla may soon become the equivalent of the ubiquitous Prius. And Porsche will take center stage. We'll see. I don't see it as a Tesla killer. You see the price. The price is much higher than I thought it would be, first of all. The price is quite high. The turbo starts at... And then there's the whole naming, just well, as four-door coupes. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah, just as four-door coupes <laughs> drive me crazy. And calling it a turbo is a little bit anachronistic as well. But, you know, some people fired back on, on that Musk. That confused me. You know, Elon Musk 
famously trolled Porsche saying, I don't think Porsche realizes what turbo means. And a bunch of his followers, as well as critics, fired back with, we're not sure Elon understands what the term supercharger means. <laughs> and then the Germans apparently fired back with, we have a different understanding of, of the definition of funding secured. <laughs> so, you know, I, I look at all this as kind of fun. I, yeah, I think it's great yeah. that there's a little bit of a rivalry going with Porsche and Tesla. And the reality is Tesla's ahead on several fronts. They're ahead on range and they're ahead on infrastructure for charging and all of this. So, you know, the, the ball is in Porsche's court. It's got to perform. I think it will with time. And it'll be interesting to see how Porsche does as it evolves the model line and goes down market with the regular base Taycan and the 4S and maybe a GTS. Right. What will happen next? And also the potential to use this technology. We were talking about entry points earlier to use this same electric technology in a pure sports car at a lower price point, which might bring a lot of new people into the brand. Could it be a new Boxster in some ways? Imagine, you know, a Boxster or even smaller, like the size of the original Boxster, but mm -hmm. fully electric powered. That could be a great way to, you know, not only appeal to true Porsche enthusiasts who might want a car like that, but a lot of new buyers, you know, who are looking for something electric that's also a fun weekend car. That's right. And they don't have to buy into the program with a $100,000 box, right. which is what you have to do now if you Correct. want to get something fully dialed. Well, thanks so much for coming in and just touching the tip of the Porsche iceberg. There's so much to talk about, and this is an open invitation to have you and Triple Zero Magazine back for another conversation. Looking forward to and it. And we've enjoyed it. Well, this is great. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. Thank you to Pete Stout and Alex Polevsky from Triple Zero Magazine for joining us on Cars That Matter. And join me next time to continue talking about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Today's guests were Pete Stout and Alex Bolevsky. Tune in to Cars That Matter wherever you rev up your podcasts. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.